Well, I'd encourage you this morning to turn back to Acts chapter 17, because we're going to start there, and we're just going to look at a few things, and then we're going to go back to where we belong, Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're going to finish up uh, where we were last time together. But to get our bearings, to gain a little more context, and to kind of set the stage for what God can do in our lives through this passage, I'd like us to go to Acts chapter 17, where we were in our scripture reading this morning. And with that, let's pray. Father, thank you again for just the songs that we've sung today, uh, the truths that were expressed in those. Father, thank you for the reality of those things. Lord, thank you for your word that we have it, that it's trustworthy, that it's reliable. Father, thank you that for the understanding we have of your word and, and how that just ushers us uh, directly into your fellowship, Father. Just thank you for that. Thank you for the intimacy we can have with you through Jesus Christ. And Father, it's really to that end that we're opening your word here this morning. Father, we know you seek to desire and you desire to for us to walk with you. So, Father, would uh, today as we talk about maybe challenging circumstances that we're in or maybe even just the, the challenging season that we're all walking through, even corporately as, as a nation and even as a world, Lord, would it be with a heart where we come out on the other side, resting in you more fully, glorifying you in a stronger way, and, Father, just letting go of the things that hold us and draw us away from you, Lord. With that in mind, we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you remember back with me, last time we were together, we have been going through the book of Nehemiah, and we started into Nehemiah chapter 9, and we've, we've labeled this whole idea the confession of change. Remember, in the book of Nehemiah, historically speaking, God is changing things in the nation of Israel. Where they were to where God needed them to be and where they needed to be, it was all about change and the progression of one to the next. So we've been looking at principles and ideas all the way throughout. And what we get in chapter 9 is this corporate national confession that was taking place uh, by the leaders, but just all of the members of, of Israel at that time, recognizing the wrong that they had done, recognizing the impact that it had between them and God, and the impact that it had in their testimony to all of the nations and the world, and the ramifications that their sin had had, seeing that it took them out of the glory of living in a land that was promised to them of God, and taking them into captivity, where the glory of God was diminished because of their unbelief and because of their rebellion and their sin and their hard-heartedness. And one of the things that we saw as they are confessing nationally is when we looked at the cultural context of these people. Now, if we look at what it was like for the nation of Israel, you know, God called them out, and, and at the start of the nation of Israel, it was unique. None of these things had ever happened before. There had never been a parting of the Red Sea. There had never been a calling out of a people out of slavery in such a grandiose way to point to the God of heaven that this is the I am. This is Yahweh Jehovah of Israel. I mean, it just stood out in their mind. But then God gave them the law and God brought stability into the land. And so uh, culturally speaking, they, they had the ways of God. They had the law of God. And so from there on, there, there was this understanding. This is who God is. This is what God asks of us. And th that's just how things worked. But as we are now in the book of Nehemiah, remember they went into captivity and now they, they've come back, they've rebuilt the wall, they, they trusted God, they followed him and all of those things. But they're kind of just standing in really unique times. In many senses, this generation who rebuilt the wall of the temple 
lived under circumstances that were unique that no generation previous to them had ever walked through. And so it is important for us. Sometimes we can walk through life and we can feel the weight of the uniqueness of the time in which we live. And so we kind of almost subtitled our message or kind of gave an alternate message of four principles that we started bringing out from from this national confession of Israel in um, Nehemiah chapter 9. But principles for living in a world that looks different from any previous generation and uh, received a lot of feedback as we dis- as after we had looked at that together in God's word, many conversations with you of, wow, that was really helpful, and we thinking about it that way because that is indeed a, a representation of what's going on culturally speaking. We're living in an America, we're living in a world that uh, previous generations did not know. Now you might have an understanding of why I've asked us to come to Acts chapter 17 here this morning, just to get us our bearings. And remember, this is the kind of world that that we live in, the kind of world that the Apostle Paul is talking to. You know, when, when people had an understanding of the God of Israel, he'd go back to the law and the prophets with them. He'd meet with them in the synagogue right where they were. But these people, these people were of the world. These were Gentiles. They were pagans. And they were worshiping uh, to the extent of so many idols and false gods that just in case they maybe missed one, they created a god and they said, well, to the unknown god, we'll worship you too in case we missed you. And this is the, the world that Paul was ministering into. And he didn't shy away from it. He didn't run away from it. In fact, he ran right into it. And because Paul ran right into that world, God's message of grace was transmitted to the next generation, to its first generation. And because of faithful people who passed it on, we sit here today enjoying the same message of God's grace that the Apostle Paul sent out, that he was fighting a world that was unlike any other world. So do we. But I'd like to look, look uh, with you in verse 26. So Acts chapter 17, verse 26, because there's a very sobering thought. When we think about how different the world is my natural tendency when I hear this is to like uh, recoil a little bit because I didn't ask for it. I don't want to be part of a generation called to be a minister of reconciliation to in, that looks different than any other generation. It's comfortable to go back to what we know and all of those things. I don't want to be part of that. But we need to come to terms with God's sovereignty over all of this. And, and we see this in verse 26. Among the other things that Paul says to them, he's talking about God, creator God. He's defining the unknown God to them. He says this God is able to be known, verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Get this. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not afar off from each one of them. There's an idea represented here about God having determined the the pre-appointed times and the boundaries. I'm going to simplify it and say this. If you're sitting in our church this morning, or if you're listening online at any point, God has placed us in the context of history, in the context of the world, of what's going on, of what isn't going on. God has placed us in the context of history where which he can be most glorified by our submission and our life and our walk of faithfulness to him, where he can receive the greatest glory for us. We are in this season to borrow from elsewhere in scripture, literally for such a time as this. So let's get back to these principles that we needed to be reminded for, that we see fleshed out 
by the nation of Israel who were walking through similar times. They hadn't seen anything like this before either. The first principle, if you have your outline, we just read it for us. We see that we need to reckon that God's calling touches every part of our story. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 17. He's, he's explaining to them who God is, that God exists. And then we need to move beyond that, and we need how people see that God cares what you do matters, and God has a plan for you. There is nowhere in your life that is to be untouched by God. It's kind of the exact opposite of the, of, uh, of the Athenians there, right? We have all of these idols, and in case we miss one, we'll just make this big general bucket of to the unknown one. It's almost as if Paul took that idea and said, you have all of these things. Well, there is no unknown place that is not touched by the real God in our lives. Secondly, as we, as we come to grips with God is involved everywhere, we see principle number two, God's character must anchor our story. Everybody's looking for identity. Who am I? What do I believe about myself, but what do I believe about God? What we believe about him impacts everything we do. His character is the anchor to how we walk through these trying times, or, or whatever the circumstances might be for you. Well, this week we move on and, and through the rest of the chapter. We turn back to Nehemiah chapter 9. And first we're going to see here, this is point number three on your outline, that God's righteousness, God's righteousness, if that's hard to spell, you can also say his rightness. Because that's what righteousness is. God's righteousness will ultimately prevail in every story. We read the big picture of scripture. In the beginning, God created. And then we go all the way through and we get to the book of Revelation. And do you know what the easiest synopsis of the book of Revelation is? Two words. God wins. That's what the book of Revelation is about. God wins. All is consummated. All that God has promised, all that God has ordained, preordained, appointed, will come to pass. And in that, God's truth, God's holiness, but God's rightness, his righteousness is going to prevail. Because he said he's going, because he said it's going to. Well, let's see what this looks like from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. And we'll just recall to mind that um, verses 5 uh, up through 15 or so, the, the leaders of, of Israel were kind of extolling, and they were, they were focusing on God. And there's a whole lot of, you, Lord, and you. And it was a very upward, personal focus between him. Remember, we actually called to mind, this is actually written in poetry for him. And so they're, they're taking time and their thought and effort to um, magnify the majesty of God when they're extolling who he is and what he's done. They, they take extra care and concern to put it in the form of poetry that would be understood in a special way by its reader. I mean, we miss it because to us, it's just Words that are sometimes hard to understand. But the original readers, they, they totally got that. They, under, they understood all of these things. And, and the whole tone and direction of this passage is, You, you God, you are Lord Almighty. You, all of these things. Now we come to verse 16. And let's read verse 16. But they... And our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. What shifted 
Did you catch that? Before it was you, God, you, 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 and look at all that you've done. Look at everything great and wonderful. Now they, no, let's first define. Who's the they talking about? Well, as the, as the, the Israelites and their leaders are gathered together and they're, they're confessing nationally and what's, what all is taking place here. The they they're referring to is their ancestors, their fathers, their kinsmen, the, the, the Israelites who had come before them, their leaders. And they're saying they messed up. They did this. Look at all the wrong choices that these guys uh, had made. <clears throat> we'll fill in the, the, the sub point to our outline and then we'll start to describe it a little bit more. Point A here under number three is despite man's choices, God remains faithful to his character and promises. Despite man's choices, parenthesis, my stupidity. Why is my wife the only one that laughed? No. <laughs> God remains faithful in his character and promises. Pardon me. I have tea. I'm about to lose my voice, so <laughs> I don't think that would hurt many people's feelings. So we see here man's choices running amok, right? We just saw all the wonderful things about God. And now that there's a star shift Wherein they're going, well, they did this. They messed up. Yeah, they did. They made some wrong choices. They were woefully stubborn with that. And if you actually look at this, you could start to count, and you'd have to move to more than one hand to start counting this stuff. Look at this. They acted proudly. They hardened their neck. That means that they were dead set resolutely against God going in an opposite direction than what he had said. They did not heed God's commandments. They refused to obey. That's another way to say the same exact thing. They were not mindful of God's wonders. You know, I had to take a moment to pause when I was studying this this week. They were not mindful of God's wonders. You know, we live life at a really fast pace, faster than these guys ever did. And they lived at a, a pace of life that they had time to mull over things and ponder and think about, oh, yeah, look at what God did there. Look at all of that. There is more time. Man, we go from thing to thing to thing to thing, and we're, we fill almost every little nook and cranny of our schedule full of something or where we have stimulation of we'll listen to the radio where there's very little quiet time where we just sit and we ponder and we're mindful of God's wonders. That's a nugget. It's free of charge. But I'd encourage us all take some time to be mindful of God's wonders. These guys didn't and it showed, right? There was this, it's part of what, what kept them going down their path and not bringing them back. For if they were mindful, certainly a softened heart looking at the majesty and the working of God would, would draw one heart back. I think we're on number five now. And then we go to, to number six. They hardened their neck. Wait, you already said that before. Again, they kept doing it. Then they appointed a leader to go against God's plan. They said, this is baloney. Let's go back to be slaves again. Come again? What? Why on earth would you ever want to do that? But this is where their hardened heart had gotten. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Just right here in this passage, you see that pronoun change of, you know, you, Lord, Lord, then, they, they, they did this. And I want to give us a, just a moment of, of caution to think about this idea. Culturally speaking, there are many who want to resurrect 
the sins of others and the sins of the past and things that have gone wrong and, uh, and make those of the present pay for it, you know, kind of, kind of going after that. And there, there's, I will explain that in that idea, there is a heart that's searching for something. There's a heart needing validation. There's a heart needing fulfillment that needs grounding and identity from God that you will never get even from people coming forward and saying, well, they were wrong, so I'm wrong too. And let me, that will never meet the needs and the hearts of the world that we live in. And so God's word does speak and offer counsel and and, uh, some understanding, even in things like this. But I also want to specifically look at this in terms of, uh, the people, they were hurting because of the decisions of, of these other guys, right? Because of the they, right? They were hurting. They, they had gone to captivity, and then, I mean, they came out of captivity, but, I mean, their, their world is in ruins, and they had to rebuild the, the wall around the city, and just, it's, it's not the glory that it should have been. And it was their fault, okay? It's so easy for us, and I'm part of that. It's so easy, particularly when we experience pain because of other people's choices, to focus on the they. You get that? When I focus on the they, I'm, I'm pointing out the finger, and my kindergarten teacher comes to mind, though, when I start doing that, because what, the, what do they say? For every finger you point, there's three pointing right back at you. There's true, there's wisdom in all of that. But their answer wasn't to, well, I can't say anything, because what they're saying is true. As we talked about in Sunday school, we filter everything, and the first question we ask is, is it true? Well, it's true. They did those things. But their focus wasn't on the wrong that those people had committed. So we saw about like seven things there, right? Guess where their focus immediately shifts to the leaders of this nation. It's not a witch hunt. Not a, oh, it was all them. We're perfect. They actually took their shift, shifted their focus off of the they. Do you know where they put it back? You. And when we experience pain at the hand of others' wrong choices, might I say and encourage us that while, yes, we reckon, we acknowledge, we see it for what it is, recognize it to be true. Our focus is not on the wrong that individual had done. Our focus goes to you, to God. It focuses on God who gives healing, who helps us move beyond those things. A beautiful picture and actual, with, without actually teaching that that's what you do, they're fleshing it out. It's just by example that they're doing for, that for us. Well, look at this. There's almost an uh, equal you statement for every they statement that they had made. Look at uh, the end of verse 17. But you are God. You're ready to pardon. Gracious and merciful slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake them. I needed, I need to be rooted in the reality. Again, God's character, all of these things. And in the context of what we're saying here, God's righteousness will ultimately prevail in every situation, despite man's choices, i.e. everything they did, God remains faithful to his character and to his promises. Exactly what is brought out here in this passage of the you. The God, despite their choices, remained true to who he is. You are God. Consequentially, I'll, I'll point this out again. I'm full of freebies today. <clears throat> 
when it says that God is slow to anger, do you know that, that it's, it's an idiom, which means it's, it doesn't translate necessarily like, you know, word for word. You have to take the, the thought of it behind. You know, uh, some idioms we use of, um, oh my goodness, I'm not even coming up with any good ones. As soon as the sermon's over, I'll, I'll, I'll remember. But uh, just different things that we say that, you know, we all know what you mean by it, but if you were to take it at literal face value, it actually is kind of, you know, comical and, and it doesn't make sense. Um, kind of like one of those, we say, uh, you're, you know, and he was running around like a chicken with his head cut off. All right, well, there's a literal understanding, but, you know, was he running around like that? No, but, you know, not the best example. But this here says that God is slow to anger. Do you know what the literal word picture here for us is? This teaches us that God has a long nose. All right, it literally means he has a long nose. Think Pinocchio. All right. Now, there's lots of different reasons in, in, in Hebrew thought, and some have tried to explain where we even get that idea from. But uh, I like that because in my twisted mind, it, it lets me kind of think of something kind of interesting. Think of Pinocchio, who has a really long nose out there, slow to anger. All right. It takes a long time to get to the tipping point. Right. And that's kind of the idea of God is slow to anger. It's going to take a whole lot to get God in his wrath and fury because goodness, his, his righteousness, his holiness tempers his righteous anger. So all of these things, God will prevail despite man's choices. And that's exactly what we have here. Well, we move on to the next thought here. And, uh, and, and we make an application for ourselves. And here it is, despite circumstances, God's children can remain resolute in God's faithfulness. So God's demonstrated himself. He just showed us right here in that passage. Look at everything they did. I'm still going to be God. And they focused on him the way that they should. So despite that, we can remain resolute. I love that word, resolute. Unwavering, steady, precise, locked and loaded on God's faithfulness. And that is going to see us through some really tough times that we might see in this world, resting in the bedrock of that. Now look at the end of verse 17, about halfway through, when it's going through the they, and it's laying out all the accusations of what they had done. It says that they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. And I was thinking, I was like, you know, you look at the early history of Israel, and they did so much. You know, it, you, know you get the big pictures. As I was going through, I'm like, well, that, that doesn't really stand out in my mind. It, you know, that's not one of the, the, the big things. You know, I kind of forget that they actually did say, hey, you know, it would be better that we get a leader and go back and be slaves again. Do you know where we can find that in Scripture? Numbers chapter 14. So if you want to keep your hand in Nehemiah, because we'll be back. But I would like to, to make this application by turning to Numbers chapter 14 this morning. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then we hit Numbers chapter 14. So Numbers chapter 14. <clears throat> And what we have here is uh, the nation of Israel. They've been wandering around, wandering around all these years, and they're ready to go to, into, into the land, right? And so they gather spies, and they send uh, the spies out to go into the land. And it wasn't really a good report, at least to the majority of them. And in fact, we have um, Caleb if you look at chapter 13, verse 30, after they go in and they spy out the land, verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. So all the, all the spies are, are together, 
And he said, let's go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. You know what? There's giants in the land. It's not, a, it's, it's not bad. We can take them. We got a good God. We have a big God that can help us overtake that. Uh, how, did the, uh, how did their friends take that news? Not so well. So much so that they purposed to give a different report to them and to shade the report, so to speak, uh, to, to the nation. Look at verse 33 of chapter 13. This is the report they gave back to the people. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in their own sight. And so we were in their sight. All right. This basically... This is too big for God. This is not good. All this, this promised stuff of God that, that you have this land to go into, it's a note for me. Basically what they were saying. And it should be a no for you, too. We don't want any part of this. So guess what the people did? Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. Here comes a frenzy. Oh my goodness, I can't handle this. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said, that, said to them, get this, they had seen God supernaturally provide for them time and time again. They got supernatural food delivered daily to them. They saw God physically leading them through a pillar by day and, a, and, and, a, and a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They could see God directly involved in their world. And their hearts cried this at the first moment of threat and fear. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness... They're not even saying it would have been better for us just to stay as slaves. They're like, it would have been better to be a slave and then die. Wow, that seems like, you know, uh, check yourself because that's, that's a really huge overstatement. Look at verse 3. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They literally did this when they were on the doorstep of having all that God had promised them. Well, Caleb, the one who already had good things to say before, he had a different view of the situation. And he spoke in verse 7 to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. Look beyond the problem and see this here. It's a good land. Verse 8, If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Those are the very words, that was the very promise of God that he had given them. And they're saying, if we would just trust God, Caleb had a big enough God that could handle the situation, the circumstances that were unlike any others that they had experienced. But they wanted comfort. They did want to go back to before. <clears throat> but in this circumstance... God's children could remain resolute in God's faithfulness. That's exactly what Caleb did. He said, no, guys, no, this, this, this is doable. God said this, and I'm going to trust him, and we're going to go for it. The end of verse 9, he says, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. All right. I mean, if this were a movie, there would be a cinematic score and the drums would be beating and growing in a crescendo. He'd give this wonderful and passionate plea. The Lord is with us. And then what? Do you think they all cheered and were like, yeah, Caleb, you're right. Let's do it. Stone him. That's what the people, they wanted to kill him for having a big God 
and wanting to follow the promises that God had promised them all and assured them that he would do. Verse 10, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then who showed up? God. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the meeting before all the children of Israel. God showed up. I hope we get to see replay someday. It's pretty cool. But what I want to point out is in this circumstance, it was hard. It had to have been difficult. But Caleb knew the story of God. God, He knew he was anchored in God's character. God said this. Yes, it's scary. Yeah, they're, they're giants. But God can do this. God will do this. And he stood resolutely in what God had promised. And he stood on that. And he even stood to the face with these people. Now, they wanted to stone him for it. But God blessed. And in the end, God actually rewarded Caleb in a special way for his faithfulness. Look at verse 24. God has this to say. He actually pronounces judgment on the people for their disobedience and their rebellion. And he calls out Caleb specifically in verse 24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully... I will bring him into the land where he was, and the descendants shall inherit it. I love that. Now, Caleb, because he has a different spirit. People say that about me, but I think they mean something different. He, that boy is different. But God says, no, Caleb, there's something in his heart. What was different in his spirit? He was willing to trust God. He was willing to remain resolute in God's faithfulness to what God said he was going to do. And so we turn to Numbers chapter 14 to gain the interpretation and the the actual account that is now, generations later, being exclaimed by the nation of Israel as an example and in their confession of all they had done right they're still learning from Caleb's example to that day. And they were focusing on God in the right way through uh, the failure of that. I'll also add to this, we're not going to get through it now, but Moses was also confident in this situation because when God showed up in in the tabernacle there, you know what God wanted to do? He had reached the end of his nose with his people. He was ready to be angry and he was at his point his tipping point he was there and he just wanted to destroy them and he wanted to start over with more people like Moses and Moses remained resolute in God's faithfulness to what God had already promised and so Moses simply took the promises of God that had already been given to him because that is enough for us having his promises. But Moses took those promises and he gave them right back to God. And he said, because of all of these things, Lord, if you destroy them now, all that you did in the nation of Egypt through them and in the wilderness, it would be for naught and it would tarnish you, Lord. Moses held God's own faithfulness to him. And God honored that. Look at verse 20 of Numbers 14. After Moses brings it, and I would encourage you to read this whole chapter this week. It's, it's a blessing. But in verse 20, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Isn't that something? The faithfulness and how God blessed Moses through Moses' resolute belief in God's faithfulness. Wonderful, wonderful picture for us. So we walk away seeing this principle when we live in unique times. God's righteousness will prevail in every, every story. And we need to rest in that despite what we feel is going on, despite what we see and endure. In the end, he wins. Number four, we return back to the book of Nehemiah. And our principle number four, we must submit our story to God. We must submit our story to God. 
You see, we've talked about all the things that God has done, who he is, and how he remains true and faithful to himself, and how we focus on all of that. But in the end, it always comes down to this decision where are we going to give in to him? Are we going to come under the protective umbrella of his love, his grace, his truth, his promises, his holiness? That's what submission is. It's literally a word picture that means to come under, submit, to come under. So if we're submitting to God, we're coming under who he is, the the safety of who he is. Well, we're going to look at this back in Nehemiah chapter 9. And, and this, uh, I'll point out for you, we just looked at one big paragraph here where we have the, they did this, then the you. And we don't have time to go through this, but that doesn't stop there. All right? The people, they then go, they did it, but you, they, you. And you're going to see this probably four or five times over. Again, take some time. Look at the structure of this. It's a beautiful example. It's very grounding for us to see how they recognize the pain they're in. They recognize the wrong, but they recognize and they dwell on the God of it all through that for them. But then we get to the, the, the end of this. And again, we have a pronoun change. Remember, it was all you. And then it shifted to they you. And now in verse 32... We have this. Now, therefore, our God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. We must submit our story to God. Intimacy in our walk with God is rooted in, number one, humility. Notice, Who were the ones that were really wrong here? The they. But they, (laughs) now I'll use a different they. Now, the Israelites in this passage, they're saying, yes, they were wrong. But what we skipped over in, in, in Numbers chapter 14 is a component of generational sin and generational curse that was attached and part of the law. That, and that was part of why there was national confession for them. That the sins of the fathers exceeded generation to generation. And so they're sitting here and they're saying, they did this. But really, we were part of them. It, it's, the, it's the us. Now, therefore, our God, they bring themselves into that. And there's humility in that for us. There's humility in not just pointing the finger at they, but making themselves as part of the problem, saying we. Beyond humility that we see in verse 32, there's also transparency in all of this. And submitting our story to God, we have to deal with everything that's coming up inside of us as we deal with it. And there's a transparency. And I love that in verse 32. Look at the middle of the verse. They're saying, you know, we're part of this, Lord. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. I love that. They've, th- this chapter has multiple times talked about how big and awesome and mighty and, and smart and intelligent God is. And here they are. They're owning it. They're taking it. But in a transparency, and, and we have an intimacy with God that is so much more than what was ever available under the law because we have the cross. We have the spirit of God dwelling in us. We have all of these things. But in all of this, they're they're basically saying, hey, all this stuff that we're suffering, don't think it to be too small. You know, we're not just saying, you know, yeah, but it's okay you know, I joke if, if a little kid like steps on my toe or something, my go-to joke with them is, oh, it's okay, it'll grow back. Which everyone knows is not a thing at all, but it, it's cute, it's funny. They're not, they're not minimizing the pain they're in. They're not saying, ha, 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 it's okay, but uh, no. They're saying, no, this stinks, 
this really stinks, and they had no problem sharing it with God. And this is under the law. Think about that. Think about the, uh, the intimacy that we have, where we have the, the spirit of adoption who seals us, whereby we can cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. We have that level of intimacy, that as we're walking through challenging things, part of the submission to God coming under to be able to walk through whatever we're doing and go through his ways It's okay to be transparent. It's okay to be honest about what you're feeling. He can handle it. And what happens as a result of that is as we give that to him, his spirit is then able to work in our hearts and lives to bring understanding, to bring balance, conviction, to help us work through those things, maybe areas where we have some wrong thinking. He's going to take care of that. But intimacy with God there needs to be a transparency. And yes, most of all, when things are hard, when we're struggling through things. There's a song I love on the radio right now. She sings out that even at my worst, you love me. The song starts out, if I'm being honest, I didn't think you'd stay with all of my problems. I was so afraid that when you saw them, you would turn your back on me and leave. She's not singing to a person. She's singing to God in that. And the refrain ends that even at her worst, God loves her in that. Humility, transparency, and last but not least in this, surrender. If you look uh, later on at verse 36. Here we are, servants today in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. There's almost a double meaning there. Where they're talking, they said, this is us, this is, a, this is a we. Here we are today, your servants. But it's more than that. It's reckoning the circumstances weren't good. In the end, they were still coming out of exile. They still were not in charge of the land because there were governors over top of them. So in the end, here they are, servants. Not just God's servants, but servants of others. So the outcome isn't exactly what they want it to be. But they submitted and they surrendered to God despite the pain, the temporary pain of the circumstances that they were our last point on your outline this morning God desires to redeem every part of every story of each of his children that is an all encompassing inclusive statement God desires to redeem to buy back use for his glory use for his praise every part of every story of each of his children. Even though they were still remaining in hard times, God was going to be able to use them. And this was going to move the nation of Israel to ratify a new covenant with God, a commitment statement that they were going to be making with that. But for you and I, we need to submit our story to God. We need to surrender even amidst the circumstances. Now, I know we can, it's, this is enough to just talk about it in the context of what's going on culturally and historically and all of these things. Maybe that's not so much a, a concern for you. Maybe it's a financial storm you're in. Maybe it's a relational monsoon where you're struggling with a loved one or maybe multiple loved ones. Maybe your spouse you could easily be sitting in a a set of circumstances that look like no other set of circumstances that you've ever experienced before. These four things, let them guide you. Let them be your anchor. God's calling still touches your life in the midst of what you're walking through. God's character will anchor your story today, tomorrow, and every day hereafter. 
God's righteousness in the end will ultimately prevail in your story. And we need to submit our story to God. I close with 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I just read one verse for you as along the idea of submitting our story to him, Paul talks about the spiritual warfare that we're in 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 chapter 10 here. Verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. He says, Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Like we saw, they, you, Paul connects this thought and he says, casting down anything and everything that is going to keep us away from the you. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Not only do we surrender our story, but that, what does it look like to surrender our story? It looks like bringing every emotion, everything we feel, everything we think, into the lap of a loving father who will sustain you, who will be faithful, and in the end, his righteousness is going to reign through your story, through the circumstance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so good. Thank you for being so powerful. Lord, just seeing these ideas here, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve to suffer and yet still be glorified and, and provided for in such a perfect way by you, Lord. Father, I thank you for examples like we have. I mean, your word Paul taught us that we have the Old Testament for our learning. And Father, we see this loud and clear in this passage. Thank you, um, Father, because the, the sins of Israel, we're so prone to ourselves. Father, we can grumble. We can harden our heart. We can see you working in our lives and, and to, to a miraculous degree and still turn our hearts away from you. So, Father, might we be Caleb's? Might we have a spirit that is different than the others that we might be willing to surrender our stories to you and for you to work in mighty, powerful ways? Father, thank you for these. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.